Welcome to episode 208 of the Energy Talks podcast. I'm energy and climate journalist Markham Hislop. If you listen to this podcast regularly, you hear me enthuse about batteries a lot. And one of the reasons for that is the amount of and degree of innovation going on in this space. And it's batteries are tied into so many other clean energy technologies like wind and solar so renewables. And then we've got transportation and the, and then we've got, you know, stationary, uh, stationary uses in the power sector and in the residential and business commercial, on and on and on. It's often said that batteries are the heart of the energy transition. I, I think that's by and large, that's true. So today we're, I'm going to talk to Connor Watts, who is the EV and battery analyst with Rethink Energy Research and author of The Global Battery Market Forecast to 2040. And he joins us from from jolly old England. So welcome to the uh, to the interview, Connor. Yes, sir. Thank you for having me. The I think uh, one of the things that really struck me about your study is the amount of growth that you're forecasting out to 2040, which I mean, really, it's like 16 years, which is, you know, in, in, in when you're one of the things I've learned uh, in covering energy is that a, a particularly traditional energy you know, like oil and gas requires a lot of infrastructure. And building that out takes takes engineering and project management and it, they don't get built overnight. And so growing the battery industry globally by 14 times from 550 gigawatts uh, gigawatt hours to 7,782 gigawatt hours seems like a big challenge. Is it or are we well on our way? Is this something that we know how to do and we can do? You know, it's, it's a reasonable, achievable goal. Well, that's kind of more about how you think about what consists of a gigawatt hour. And so we've seen historically in the last few years where we've seen a the idea of a gigafactory being perpetuated as this mammoth undertaking, at which point one gigawatt hour production put in a factory. But in, in a few short years, maybe seven or eight or so past that point, we've seen the standard become 100 gigawatt hours for the largest factories in a similar footprint, and at least not increasing linearly. And so the progress of innovation is going to pretty significantly affect the level of infrastructure that's required to be able to fuel that increase. After publishing this report, we've kind of looked at this more and decided but maybe that's a little conservative even based on the amount of growth that's going to be required in these industries. And so we don't see the infrastructure being the problem so much in meeting this demand, but the raw material supply. It's more about the access to cathode materials, nanomaterials, and other components that will be the bottleneck rather than something like cell manufacturing, which the current announced and projected increases are already above that for 2030 rather than 2040. That, okay, so let's talk about battery battery plants, battery uh, manufacturing facilities. Uh, I don't know much about it, but what I have read about uh, China's scale-up of wind and solar and battery manufacturing is that there is a tremendous amount, I mean, these are all on learning curves, so every time we double production, we're likely to see a 10, 15, 20% reduction in costs. And there, there's 
where did I read this? Uh, there, there have been innovations in battery plants like shifting to dry coating from wet coating of anodes. Mm-hmm. So and now that that's a kind of a nerdy thing, and you know, but it's if you multiply those kinds of innovations, and so that your plants become more efficient, like if you, if you don't if you don't have to have anodes sitting around drying, you just freed up I don't know how x amount of floor space that can be used for something else. That is that kind of what we've seen over the last little while, and what you expect to continue into the future. Yeah, exactly. It's a combination of both improvements in manufacturing process, as you mentioned, with a shift to kind of a dry electrode manufacturing process, but also it's a matter of increasing energy density of anode and cathode materials. It's it's just general improvements in the way that you use space, because when you do something new for the first few times, you don't do it incredibly efficiently, but you learn where you're going wrong very quickly, and you can adapt for the next factory and the next one, and you iterate upon prior steps. And when we see, especially in China, with the likes of CATL and BYD, just expanding rapidly, they're learning so much at this point in time that, A, it's going to be very hard for competitors to keep up and continue innovating at that pace. But it's also, they're learning how to use that space efficiently and how to properly deploy the capital that they have access to in order to to meet that kind of future demand. When it comes to especially when it comes to manufacturing of cells. China has been in overcapacity of LFP manufacturing plants for the last year or so. About, well, there was a piece recently by the Financial Times and I believe CRU, which said that the average utilization rate of a Chinese LFP manufacturing factory was about 45%. And so the capacity for expansion isn't where we see a bottleneck. That's quite simple, especially as technology improves and those energy density savings can be made. I want to ask you a question, and this may be out of your, you know, bailiwick, this, but I'm going to ask it because in Canada, it's been hugely controversial this year that the federal government has provided $28.3 billion, I think is the number, uh, of subsidies to two battery plants. Um, one was VW, and I just forget the other one off the top of my head. But the these Lantis? two plants, yes, thank you, exactly. And so the the argument, uh, there's been a lot of argument, and from from traditional economists, which I, I know quite a few of them, and we've gone back and forth on this on social media. But you know, they they go, no, that you know, that's you're overpaying for that. That that's that's an inefficient subsidy. There was no market failure. So what if the battery plants get built someplace else? You know, that that's that's you know, build them in the US if it's it's cheaper there and we can save our 28 million and put it into healthcare or something. And and I I I argue have argued that building if if batteries are the heart of the energy transition and Canada wants to be more than just a supplier of raw materials, the critical minerals and, and so on, which it has it has plenty of. So we're going to play in this space on the critical mineral side and probably we'll do some of the processing and refining and smelting as well because we have some of that some of that capacity. But we'll see. But if we really want to play in this, if we want to have an EV industry, not just in Ontario, but the, support the burgeoning one in Quebec, and there are other smaller companies on the West Coast, for example, that are, are getting into this. We need, we've got to have it. And if you don't, if you don't build it, like if you, if you don't 
if, if you don't develop the battery industry the way that the Chinese have done over the last 20, 25 years, make those kind of investments and, and upfront and, and do the, get on the learning curve and on and on and on, then you're only the only other option if you want to play in this sandbox is to buy it. And that means subsidies from, from the government. But how important, I guess my argument is founded on the assumption that having battery plants and having supply chains in your domestic economy is going to be really important going forward uh, in the 21st century economy if you really want to be competitive. I agree. I think with um, with economists, and just a minor disclaimer, I my background is in economics, but I'm not incredibly fond of the discipline increasingly. Um, something I find economists struggle to quantify and properly gauge the effects of is both the value of infrastructure and of risk. And so those are two very broad topics, but with regards to the battery industry, having cell manufacturing plants is just good for the economy, just in general. And it, in Canada's case in particular, you have domestic raw material supply, which is underutilized as of right now, but there are projects on their way. And having a vertically integrated supply chain is a good way to, A, minimize risk within the country. So if another international supply chain crunch happens, as similarly happened with COVID-19, you'll be minimally affected by key industries. Meanwhile, in the automotive sector, as of right now, with ICE vehicles, companies are still suffering the effects of semiconductor shortages and just general supply chain mess that came about from having an inherently globalized supply chain. I forget who it was, but somebody said recently with regards to the battery industry and the IRA in particular, in that globalization is dead and that having inherently international supply chains which maximize efficiency and lower costs to the absolute minimum is no longer seen as the optimal way to organize an economy because one small thing happens and there's a cascade effect and you're kind of up a creek with no paddle so there's more value being put on having a domestic manufacturing industry because of a greater understanding of risk however at the same time i think in 15 years or so the globalization will come back it's because people forget I, I did a very interesting interview last year with Shannon K. O'Neill uh, about globalization, and and she argues that it's really not globalization; it's regionalization. And we're when we're moving more in the direction of regionalization. So we'll have you know Asia uh, dominated by China, and then there'll be the EU, and then there will be North America, and we'll see what other what other blocks emerge. But those are really key. So. You know, and the Americans have decided that they're going to be in the clean energy industry in a big way because they see it as a, a as a uh, geopolitical issue with China. Uh, and and here Canada is right next door already with an economy mostly integrated in with the Americans anyway. So that's that's the one thing. But the other thing is, I think is that the the you know, if you look at a battery plant, there are three three basic linkages that come out of an investment like that. You've got the backward linkage, so that's your supply chain that is going to be supplying inputs. 
you've got forward linkages. So now you've got an, an, a burgeoning EV industry in Ontario and in Quebec, but that gives you the opportunity to get into other uh, kinds of industries that then can use those batteries as an input. So then you've got technology linkages. And I and the, those linkages, I mean, what have what have we learned from China and Germany, and uh, you know, if not the importance of being being at the forefront of of our of research and development, and in and, and innovation, and what that does for uh, the benefits that accrue to to national and regional economies. So I I, I see this as as not just being a, you know the most efficient use of capital or public funding as so much as these broader issues that bear, that uh, that I think we need to discuss here in Canada. Anyway, enough of enough of that. So let's talk about dominant battery use cases starting with passenger vehicles. Right. So when it comes to the passenger vehicle sector, we're already seeing a significant kind of increase which is set to go exponential up to about 2030 before Paying off, and so that will be the vast, vast majority of the global battery industry, just because of effectively consumers' range requirements within kind of different regions. And our report primarily focuses on the technologies behind ensuring that these battery needs can be met. And so, increasing energy density, increasing charging speed, and ease of manufacturing capacity expansion, as the kind of broad. Um, as kind of the board improvements. And so what we're seeing within the what we're seeing within the passenger vehicle industry at the moment is a pretty significant shift in chemistry away from high neck ternary towards lithium phosphate batteries. And the innovation that's going into lithium phosphate batteries is being spearheaded by the Chinese. So that means CATL, BYD, this Goshen. And the rate at which we see Chinese commercialization and R and D um kind of bear fruits has been frankly staggering and the problem with continuing with high nickel ternary batteries is that outside of the anode side which also affects lithium phosphate batteries there's a there's less room to expand in terms of energy density within the kind of high nickel cathode chemistries well, what about phosphate i've read that the, the average energy density in the battery industry goes up seven percent a year which is mm -hmm. pretty staggering but with the existing chemistries, are there any innovations in you know on the horizon that would suggest that we're going to see energy density grow, you know, more than seven percent? There's counterbalancing um, factors here, so it depends on whether you're talking about averages or certain market segments. So there was a deal recently with a British um, anode materials company called Nexian, who are working with Panasonic which claims an up to 50% increase in energy density in Panasonic's high nickel batteries, most likely, because that's more or less all it makes, for a drop-in solution, which is anode side. And so in the past few years, the, most of the innovation has been in optimizing, say, the NCM uh, mineral ratio while retaining cycle life and charging performance. So it's, it increased from... 111 up to 811 and soon to be 9.5.5 and this has been largely maxed out and so we generally believe that the 2020s will be the year of anode and electrolyte optimization 
while the 2030s will be the mass ramp up of solid state battery manufacturing, which will see lithium return on the anode side while increasing energy density to upwards of 450 to 550 watt hours per kilogram. What and uh, maybe give us a, where, where are, yeah, but where where are we now in terms of energy density? High nickel ternary batteries, the best of them, are about 250 watt hours per kilogram without any significant, well, without a specialized, extremely high cost silicon solution. So we're seeing that increased, but we're also seeing semi solid state batteries with the likes of WeLine, who's supplying NEO's um, uh, battery swapping system with 150 kilowatt hour batteries, which currently costs more than a car, which is interesting. But um, the mass market segment, as of right now, is closer to 200. And so there's less range, but far, far lower costs, especially in a low lithium cost environment, because that's more or less the entirety of the material cost of the battery at this point. I, I was reading about, and it may have been CATL, that mm -hmm. made a, a battery for a Geely, which is a Chinese manufacturer, a Geely EV that had just over a thousand kilometers of range. And is that, you know, are we going to see that kind of range uh, in SUVs or other high-end kind of vehicles uh, become will become commonplace? Yes, absolutely. It's it's a matter of time, frankly, especially with the likes of CATL kind of spearheading this. And that that I believe was its condensed battery, but I don't believe that was. Um, that's been put into vehicles as of yet. I believe their condensed battery is set for mass production around 2025, 2026, while its Shenzhen battery, which focuses on cycle life and charging speed, is set for mass production at the beginning of next year and is already oh, okay. being put into two different vehicles. So when it comes to battery companies to watch, CATL's announcements, while often scarce on detail, you can trust that they're at pretty much the forefront of the battery technology industry until it comes to solid state, at which point it gets a little bit more blurry and also kind of drop in anode solutions, which require collaboration between companies, as in the case of Nexium and Panasonic. Right. And we'll get to solid state batteries in a bit. In the heavy duty trucking side, and there's been a big debate about that. And, and I know that, that Canada is putting a lot of emphasis on long haul freight to switching over to hydrogen, but you know, a hydrogen truck is going to ha has batteries as well. But where do you stand on the, likelihood of the trucking industry sw switching to battery uh, electric trucks? Well, recently we saw an announcement from, I believe it was Packard, um, Daimler, and another heavy-duty trucking company, which is investing in a lithium-ion phosphate battery factory in the U.S. Now, this is partly just to make use of IRA subsidies because the investment economics are insanely good for them. But we see um, we see battery electric trucks making up the majority of trucks up from light duty up to the kind of low demand or, or low mileage demand heavy duty trucks because a lot of the lower duty trucks, whether that's delivery vans or effectively buses, they have regular routes which can be optimized for for recharging at certain times of day, which can then be offset by energy storage. And the main problem that we see with hydrogen is just a matter of cost. Uh, 
primary use case for hydrogen at Rethink is in international energy transfer. So it's being used as a transport. It's being used as an energy transport mechanism in the same way that LNG is and oil, where it's sent from one continent to another because of whether it's a limited generation capacity or other reasons. That's where hydrogen comes in well because it, it is a good store of energy when put into something like ammonia or in or in other forms. Trucking is not as solid a option, but we do see companies quite literally pursuing everything. We see companies pursuing BEVs as well as fuel cell electric trucks, as well as hydrogen internal hydrogen internal combustion engines. Right. Um well, we'll be watching that space with with some interest. I, I think that uh, you know Vancouver in particular has a number of uh, companies that are uh, sort of leading in that fuel cell space. Ballard would be one of them. But there are a number of smaller ones as well. Well, let's talk about stationary storage because this really interests me. Uh, with the rapid spread of wind and solar, and I don't know how many times I've 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 seen you know, heard the complaint about the wind doesn't always uh, <laughs> blow and the sun doesn't always shine. Oh yeah. Okay, fine. But you know, stationary, stationary storage is really, it uh, seems to be taking off and we see it in, we saw it in California over the last two years. Uh, I know there are some people who think that that essentially saved their, uh, their grid uh, last summer and, and this summer. And then we see it in Texas uh, in a big way. Australia is, is, is implementing a lot of this. Where are we at with stationary storage? So we define stationary storage by short duration and long duration. And so short duration is anything up to four hours, which is more so used for grid balancing and the odd bit of effectively peak load maintenance, whereas long duration can be used for greater flexibility in the, in addressing the intermittency of renewables, at which point different battery types become more viable than lithium-ion. And so... We see the short duration um, energy storage sector leaning towards lithium and sodium ion primarily because you can't flex the power characteristics of the battery. Whereas in the long duration specs and in the long duration space, pardon, we see alternative chemistries taking up an increasingly significant share once production ramps up because being able to be increasingly modular in your battery designs puts greater project economics on long duration energy systems. And so the short duration kind of low capacity, low capacity, high power, relatively speaking, systems will likely remain lithium and sodium ion. However, long duration will shift towards alternative chemistries while still using a bit of the, while still using lithium ion from time to time. Um, let's talk about some of those other chemistries. Uh, I interviewed a manufacturer of vanadium flow redox batteries mm -hmm. uh, last year. Um, and he told me that they were up to 12 hours and would soon, uh, in the next year or two, would get to 16 hours. Mm. And that seemed like a perfect solution for stationary storage if it if they can achieve that. So where do flow batteries fit into this? It depends on the type of flow battery. So we're not incredibly bullish on vanadium flow battery because the supply chain for vanadium is a little bit complicated. And it's relatively 
expensive. So we talk with a number of companies. Um, I don't know if you've heard of ESS, but uh, they they produce iron flow batteries and recently signed a three hundred million dollar um, investment deal slash order with Honeywell and their um, their energy storage division. They can produce up to twelve hour batteries as of right now, and they could increase it to higher than that because the cost of increasing the capacity of a flow battery is incredibly minimal because if you pick a relatively cheap electrolyte, they use um, iron chloride, which is you know, iron and chlorine, both of which are incredibly cheap. They can increase that. And throughout the, throughout the lifespan of a project, which they say is 20 to 25 years with maintenance, you can, well, that additional cost is noise. But you again, you only pay to see the to see out the demands of the project. When it comes to longer duration than something like twelve hours, it's about the increasing demand for it before they make a product. And so, sixteen we haven't seen too much of. Eight to twelve is where we see the very upper end as of right now. But that's just due to relatively low renewable deployment, which will increase with time. So. As renewable deployment increases, we'll see more of those larger projects. Especially, now, I, I also yeah, did but... an interview with a Canadian company um, last year that was making, getting set to make zinc ion batteries, and they made the claim that their batteries uh, would be thirty percent cheaper than lithium ion with the same performance characteristics. Uh, what do you think about zinc ion? Um, I, what's this e-zinc by any chance? Um, I just forget offhand. Okay, I, I do believe it was easy. Uh, there's a couple interesting companies that are looking at zinc ion, but it's um, the problem with when it comes to putting your costs relative to the cost of lithium ion is that it's constantly evolving. It's constantly evolving both on the manufacturing side and on the raw material side. Zinc ion is going to be far less volatile in the in the in how costs change relative to lithium ion battery storage, at least as of right now, because it's a smaller industry with a less volatile kind of demand base. It's a matter of expanding production capacity to the point where it can compete with the economies of scale with lithium ion. That's one of the problems with any alternative battery chemistry, in that if lithium ion or sodium ion effectively becomes cheap enough to just throw it as project, then you don't have a commercial impetus to develop that manufacturing capacity that would lower your prices. Because as you said earlier, every time you double manufacturing capacity, costs fall by a related percentage. And that's rights law. That's how this will work. But the impetus for lithium ion to expand is far higher because of the electric vehicle industry. Same with sodium, with electric mobility, and the stationary storage. Zinc ions complicated and we are hesitant to really put too much into it we it's not something i would want to rely on in the near future okay fair enough um well let's talk about emerging technologies um and we you've mentioned uh, solid state already and toyota has <laughs> toyota you know has been flirting with this for a while and and has made some claims this year you know that it, in a couple of years they'll be into commercial production, and it'll and they've announced a, 
I think it was two, three weeks ago, they announced a, a big breakthrough in, in their technology. They're going to have, you know, long range and, and faster charging times and, and more cycles. What do you make of that? Every time, every time Toyota releases a press release, I I almost try to go back five years and try to find somebody else who made something relatively close to that, word for word, because that's about as far behind as it feels like they they are. Um, if that breakthrough didn't push forward their commercialization pipeline, then I'd still be worried as to their future. Where um, you know. Toyota seems to have squandered something that it could have started off incredibly well with because it used to help out how Tesla and it was looking at what it was doing with BEVs. It was just looking at it too early. They didn't see what it could have become. And they're still hellbent on trying to force hydrogen into the into the passenger vehicle market, which for some entrenched markets, like maybe Japan, but even then we find unlikely, they might work. But Toyota has its finger in too many pies. It's trying to pursue too many different things and isn't hellbent on pursuing one, which it's clear just from electric vehicle sales that for passenger vehicles, that will be the winner. Hydrogen does not have a space in it in the vast, vast majority of markets. So stop pursuing it. Leave that to kind of the heavy duty trucking division. They can look at it. And once a winner is there, hopefully you've pursued the right one. But with regards to its solid state battery, it's on about commercializing it and putting it into vehicles by 2028. This is about a year, two years later from other Western manufacturers. And those on the very forefront of all solid state batteries are talking about 2025. These are CATL, QuantumScape, and others, where the commercialization timeline just doesn't match up with what Toyota wants to do. Because when I think of a Toyota, I think of something cheap and cheerful that is mass manufactured all to be the same kind of you can have any color as long as it's black i know that that's Ford, but it works for what toyota is we generally believe that toyota is going to struggle against the chinese because the mass market segment it doesn't have the low cost anymore and it doesn't have the speed to market to properly compete with that so we take toyota's announcements with both a grain of salt and a healthy dose of pessimism Okay, fair enough. Um, so what about the Chinese uh, solid state manufacturers uh, like CATL? Um, they're going to come, they're going to be in, in the market with 2025? They're aiming to enter mass production by 2025. They're looking at more deployment towards the end of 2025 and 2026. One thing with the Chinese market is just generally they have more experience than the West when it comes to massively ramping up uh production capacity, especially with the likes of CATL and BYD. And we already see um, semi-solid state batteries from Wheeline that I mentioned earlier that are in NEO's vehicles. It's not a stretch as of right now to say mid-2025, late-2026 for the first all-solid state battery that's in a vehicle that is likely to be mass-produced. But it's about where it starts off in the market because these high energy densities, they'll probably start off at around 400 to 425 just with the first iterations. That will be going into luxury vehicles, which will not be mass market. And so they will, they'll be produced in mass as well the cafe materials and there will be learning to be had. But the 
the market is going to struggle in terms of actually selling those vehicles, particularly with China being a very kind of bulk heavy market there. The batteries over there are incredibly small. The average something like 40 kilowatt hours a vehicle, even less. So I wouldn't expect them in, in Europe until 2026, 2027, but there's other companies that are working on that. Similar sort of timeline for North America. Right. Uh, but given the fact that we've been tracking uh, solid state batteries for years, uh, now we're talking about, you know, two, three years and they're going to be in the marketplace. So in the market space in a very, very, very small capacity. And we yeah, believe sure. that in terms of manufacturing capacity, it'll maybe be 10% of the entire market by 2030. And this was echoed by, uh, I forget the company. I want to say Wood McKenzie, but sure, pretty. It was echoed by a similarly, no, it was a battery of material. It was um, Umacore. My apologies. No problem. Who... Well, let's 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 move on from solid state and talk about sodium. Uh, now, this is how how likely is it that sodium batteries are going to you know ramp up and become you know competitive, be, become commonplace. Well, it depends on the use case, and we already see announcements totaling something about two hundred gigawatt hours of manufacturing capacity by 2030. And we're expecting that to increase with time as well as more startups announce larger factories. But when it comes to use in passenger vehicles, which is where the industry kind of wants to be if it wants to have that impetus to increase manufacturing capacity, it's difficult because it depends on the type of sodium chemistry that the company is producing. Because there's three kind of dominant ones, all using very different cathode materials, all of which using a hard carbon anode, which the supply chain for that needs to really kind of catch up a bit to continue the lower costs. But for this report, we spoke with a company called Ultras, which is a spin out from Uppsala University, which produces um, a Prussian blue analog which is a Prussian white cathode material. And their goal is to produce a sodium uh, a sodium chemistry cathode material, which uses no metals. It's purely organic. And with that, it can lower costs based on sourcing from different supply chains. And it has the green credentials because it's from Uppsala, which I believe is Sweden or Finland. And... They can compete in Europe based on the carbon border adjustment mechanism. So that's one of the ways that we see sodium doing quite well. We think that their product, particularly because of the low energy density of avoiding metals, will primarily compete within the micromobility sector and, and in stationary storage. But that's how we see sodium needing to compete, because as environmental regulations kind of heighten with the need to further decarbonize, having no supply chains set up and competing on that basis will be immensely important for sodium companies. What about silicon anode technology? And again, I interviewed a couple of manufacturers or startups uh, last year and, and they were very bullish on, well, of course they would be, wouldn't they? Mm. But, but you know, they made a, they made a good case for, for silicon uh, anodes uh, becoming more popular. What would be your take? The way that we see silicon anode technology developing is that it's a very good interim solution between the shift to solid state, 
which for a lot of companies will mean completely changing you know <laughs> manufacturing processes and shifting to something incredibly foreign whereas with silicon nanotechnology, technology it's often a drop-in solution to effectively change your suppliers and it's obviously not like quite that easy but it's far easier than changing your entire supply chain it has a much more immediate commercialization date than um solid state batteries but our problem is we haven't yet seen a company other than maybe amprius which their manufacturing process seems the most complex and hardest to scale as of right now in that we don't see a commercialization route after the advent of mass solid state manufacturing because it can't compete on energy density when silicon nanotechnology ramps up in terms of manufacturing capacity if it will effectively dominate the kind of luxury segment of it'll be the suv market and other high-end battery uh, use cases where margin is greatest because it will be the best product at the time it's at about 2030 that we're worried for it in terms of where it transitions because the best route for it to effectively manage is to go from supplying the high-end luxury market where it has the profit margin, ramping up manufacturing capacity, and then shifting towards LFP batteries in, in the mass market segment. But again, we see it as an earlier commercial available um, product for OEMs and auto manufacturers to kind of differentiate themselves. But that will come at the cost of profit margin and of future manufacturing capacity. That's a calculation for the OEMs to make. And we don't see how it competes against solid state long-term because the manufacturing process of a traditional battery is just harder to scale and inherently higher cost than solid state battery manufacturing. Otherwise, nobody would be pursuing it because once the kinks are worked out of that particular process, it's going to be difficult to turn the tide. If I'm reading your chart right, you're calling for uh, the market to be dominated by solid state by 2040, something like 75% of the market? Again, this is a factor of what is in a factory. What is a gigawatt hour? And with increasing energy density, you can pack far more manufacturing capacity into a single factory. As of right now, we're seeing the largest factories at around 100 gigawatt hour. And that's with traditional lithium batteries at, these are usually NMC factories, but we even see LFP factories, which are lower energy density. And with a shift to a solid electrolyte, you can pack more into that. So by that time period, I don't think it would be too unreasonable to say 250 gigawatt hour factories in the same footprint as 100 gigawatt hour factory. And that's a obviously a 150% increase, but with the increase in energy density and in this simplification of the mass manufacturing process, that capacity expansion is far easier to commit. And the other limitation there is money. Because if you can, if you can have that financed, then of course it'll be done. But in the US and in, in the US particularly and in China, obviously, just based on their, their historical expansion, it's going to be a little bit, well, it's going to be possible. In the US, more difficult. It, that depends on what happens with relevant subsidies, kind of the IRA, the BIL, and whether or not they're continued, which we believe they have to be in order to be able to properly sustain the industry and continue its growth. But China builds things for the sake of building them. 
So <laughs> hard to compete against that. That uh, yep. when the, the Chinese state is backing. Uh, mm. What do, I want to talk about regional markets. We mentioned earlier that it, it seems to be you know the China, Korea, Japan, and then uh, and I guess then you've got the Europeans and 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 North America. Um, what about markets in Africa? What about markets in Latin America, in other parts of of, of Asia? What about India? Uh, where do you see those going? So this is a pretty difficult question, with which mostly relates, in our opinion, to how the raw material markets are going to prioritize the increase in material demand, which up until about 2030, we see pretty significant shortages in mostly lithium. Natural graphite is more of a geopolitical case because of it almost entirely being mined in China, plus there being a substitute of synthetic graphite for use in batteries. And whether or not there is enough material to be able to produce these vehicles is difficult because we already see analysts and we already see people discussing whether or not demand can even be met by current supply levels. We believe that innovation will play a significant part in that, but also that regions, mostly because of automators' increased exposure to the raw material markets, will kind of... They'll adjust battery requirements to the existence of charging infrastructure. So as of right now, the US market, it has by far the largest batteries. It's not even close. You see 100, 110 kilowatt hour batteries in kind of light trucks. And we see some people saying that these will increase, at which point, what happens to raw material demand? How are other markets served if all of the raw material demand is being funneled into, into the US, into Europe, and into China. We see the kind of smaller markets of Africa, um, Africa, South Asia, and Southeast Asia, as well as Latin America, continuing an urbanization process, which will likely be impeded by the demands of other regions taking priority, just if either way due to financing. Um, I'm I'm kind of curious about the role uh, that charging will play here. You brought this up. Um, if batteries can be designed that charge more rapidly, and char enough charging infrastructure can be built to provide drivers with the confidence that they can can charge in a reasonable amount of time and can find a charger, um, does that then? change the way we we look at batteries and and instead of you know worrying about do we need a thousand kilometers of, of range we say you know no two two fifty three hundred is fine a small battery is fine because i can charge it up in five minutes and i think there is a lower limit just because of how consumers are currently used to the mileage of an ice vehicle but that will shift with time so i think the lower limit as of right now in terms of kilometers would probably be about 500 to 450 to 500 depending on the person but also depending on the region so in europe that'll be lower in north america that'll be higher in china it's incredibly low because they already have the smallest batteries in the world charging is incredibly important for being able to maintain uh, for being able to maintain battery size and to be able to sell to everybody within a kind of given market so 
how the EV industry has currently developed has been selling from the top down. You sell from the luxury end, you you drive costs down, you sell to the mid segment, you drive costs down, you sell into this, you sell into the mass market segment, you bring costs down. That's if I'd ever been Tesla's modus operandi over the last 15 years. And so it's it's incredibly important for charging to develop with that because lower battery sizes means lower EV prices because it is still by far the most expensive component of an electric vehicle and all of the other components of an electric vehicle are comparably simplified. So you, you'll probably struggle to find a manual transmission in an electric vehicle. An internal combustion engine is incredibly complicated and annoying to make and it involves massive amounts of manpower. We can see a world around 2030 to 2035 where the production of an EV is so heavily automated because of the shift to solid-state battery manufacturing, the full casting of a vehicle body, as Tesla and a few, I believe a few other companies are now experimenting with, that it's incredibly automated and it's a function of capex. It's a function of initial capex, opex, and the amount of vehicles you can churn out, as opposed to having these massive, massive labor costs. And so we see the long-term costs of producing vehicles reducing. And that's how you sell into the mass market. But battery costs need to fall for that to happen. And there will always be raw material costs, which means the battery costs can only really go so low. But the way to mitigate this is to put less battery in each vehicle and spread that load further, which with automotive OEMs increasingly getting involved in the raw material sector, we believe there's more visibility for them to make that choice. Well, let's wrap up our conversation with discussion about uh, price of battery packs. Um, we've seen the cell prices hover around a hundred bucks. Some are, are lower, some are a little higher. I think um, I saw a price of $137 a, a kilowatt hour um, for, for battery packs. Uh, might be a little, little lower than that now, but I don't think much. Uh, where do you see that going? We see it continuing to fall in the long term, obviously, just because of the increase in manufacturing capacity. But we see this year as a little bit of a blip just because of the weak economic conditions and the price of lithium carbonate, for instance, has fallen to recent lows. I'm going to say historic lows. That's ludicrous. But it's increasingly complicated. You see... The price of battery the price of battery packs will continue to fall in the long term. Short term, the picture is a little bit more unclear because we're seeing, as you say, battery cell prices at a, around a hundred dollars per kilowatt hour. But that's in China, and as new production and as new supply chains are set up to serve the North American and the European manufacturing plants they are likely to be significantly higher cost uh, in the region of about 20% on top of China's current supply chains because they'll be more immature, they'll frankly be worse at it, and they won't have the manufacturing capacity to be able to meet China's costs as of right now. So we see the kind of regionalization of these battery cell markets driving up costs in the very, very short term just because you need to set up these new supply chains and there's monopsony and monopoly power everywhere, which increases arbitrage and profits, but only to certain people. And so 
it's a little bit difficult to say where it is going to be in the short term. We expect problems to start arising around 2025 to 2028, so when it comes to raw material markets in particular. Well, Connor, thank you very much for this. Uh, really appreciate your insights, and uh, we'll have you back next year uh, for the 2024 mm -hmm. uh, Battery Market Report. Thank you. Yes, yes. Thank you for having me.